Hello and welcome to Eavesdropping at the Movies. I'm Mike. And I'm Jose. And we continue our brief investigation into the career of Michael Caine with 1980's Dress to Kill, written and directed by Brian De Palma, a director who has been compared to Alfred Hitchcock in some ways over the years, and I think this is one of the films that earns him that comparison, has earned him that comparison. It directly alludes to Psycho. Yes. You could, I think I might, uncharitably refer to it as a Psycho rip-off. Which is not to say that it doesn't have its charms and style and that sort of thing. It's certainly not up to, you know, the heights of Psycho. On the other hand, I think it has some moments that are as great as any cinema I've seen. Yeah? Yeah. Um, so it's the first time I've seen it, but I did come into the film knowing, roughly speaking, how it transpires. I mean, having heard of the Psycho comparison. You said you hadn't seen it since it came out. Yeah, I saw it when it came out. And actually, all I remembered about it was the shower scene at the beginning, mm-hmm. yeah, and the whole museum sequence, right. which is a tour de force of filmmaking. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's almost like I'd forgotten, you know, almost everything else. <laughs> I mean, obviously, I remembered Michael Caine in a wig, yeah, and I remembered loving Nancy Allen, but I'd forgotten all about the son and the role that he plays in the narrative and so on. Yeah. And I remember the problems, because when the film came out, uh, it was really picketed by women, and it was accused of being transphobic even then. Mm-hmm. Um, which, well, is a, which is very early days for those accusations to be coming yeah, up. Yeah, and still accurate, uh, I think. Mm. Uh, and what I hadn't registered, which was very obvious to me as well, is how racist it is as well. Mm. You know? In, on the train. Yeah, the, the four gangsters in the tube all being black and yeah the the threat posed to the white woman the way that's deployed it's really racist so for those reasons and also the fact that the film is very structurally imbalanced right uh, i think uh, you can describe that structural imbalance well i think the whole sequence after he's shot by the police is almost extraneous Yes, it, it ends with essentially a dream sequence. It ends with just the, there. To, I, th- I thought it was. I mean, it made made me laugh actually, not because it was especially bad, but it is. It is, I think, quite bad. Um, but because the character of the trans killer is not the first time we've seen this, and indeed, it's basically uh, Norman Bates from Psycho mm. to the point where it's pathologized as a dual personality: one side male, one side female. In Psycho, it's his mum, and in this, it's his alternate personality, Bobby, the female personality that Michael Caine's character has. And they have the same thing, which is when the male side is attracted to a woman, the female side is threatened by it and takes over and kills them. Mm. It's the same thing as in Psycho. Mm. And it's the kind of thing that's been very, very damaging culturally to trans people, mm. even, even before trans people were something that the wider world knew about. This is mm. how the wider world was coming to know about them. Mm. And the wider world was coming to know about them as mentally ill and threatening. Mm. And the trans kind of debate today, and this is, you know, the UK especially is still so unfriendly to trans people, is largely about... It's, it's all focused on uh, trans women, that is to say men mm. becoming women. Um, it's almost never to do with women who become men, although they are trans people too. And it's all about the invasion of women's spaces and the threats that men supposedly pose. Mm. Um, and you look at all the stats and things, and you go, no, actually, trans people are always 
more likely to be victims of violence and perpetrators. Mm. And what I'm getting to is what I love about the two shower scenes here in which women are attacked by men in showers is that they are both dream sequences. In other words, they're imagined. The fear of the invasion of the woman's space by a man in women's clothing to get in there is imagined both times. It's mm. fake. It doesn't happen. Just as in real life, it really doesn't happen. I don't. It's not intentional, clearly, but it really made me laugh that it's actually quite true to life. It doesn't happen. It's just a fear. But the slashing in the, in the lift is not a, a fantasy sequence. No, that does happen. But the thing about the lift is that's not a woman's space that's being invaded. It's a public space. It's a lift. I'm sure. You, know, you see what I mean? So I'm getting at Um yeah. It's, it's okay, just yeah, it's yeah, an yeah. irony that I really it liked. Well, I would have liked it if you know if it had been deliberate. Really, I just yeah. think that. Well, I uh, like that it's not deliberate. I mean, I like that. I think it's actually pointing out that this is a fear that is unfounded. Okay, you know what I mean. Um, I really hated the psychiatrist's explanation. Yeah, yeah, it felt didactic and false, and I thought that this was a film where he, the director who also wrote it kind of didn't know how to end it, you know, basically. Yeah. Um, because, you know, it's quite a large chunk of the film that feels extraneous. Yeah, so, you know, the scene of him being shot, the long police explanation, the talk with the psychiatrist, you know, then the conversation with the son, mm. you know, then the scenes in Bellevue, then the, la- the ending dream sequence. That's a lot of, you know, yeah. stuff that feels really extraneous. If you compare it to the end of Psycho, which I think it's fair to, because that film ends with the revelation of Norman being his mother, in quotes, mm. um, and then the explanation from the psychiatrist there, which is long-winded and similarly kind of nonsensical. But then that ends, right? It, and Well, it, what it finally ends with is that shot of Norman Bates and the mother voice speaking over it. But it's kind of a quick ending in that sense, whereas here it goes through this whole extra segment of this, what turns out to be a dream sequence of um, Michael Caine's character which, killing the woman and getting out. Which, some, which you know... Some aspects cannot be. Well, I thought the scenes in Bellevue, how could that... Well, I guess I suppose it could have. I was going to say, how could... Yeah, it's a dream, so I suppose it could have Well, yeah, when it happened, I thought, well, this is completely unrealistic. It wouldn't be lit spookily. They wouldn't just be wandering around. You know, it, I mean, he's, he's a murderer now. He's supposed to be in prison or something. He wouldn't just be in bed, you know. And then when it revealed, oh, no, it's another dream sequence, you're like, fine, it's just someone's fear, you know. Mm. I get... Like, they can just do what they want in a dream sequence. Mm. And the fact that something has been illogical in it is immediately explained away, mm. you know. Um, um, but that doesn't mean that it's not excessive, as you say. Unnecessary. It feels unnecessary. It's, it's finding a way to end with um, another shock, another bit of flair. Yeah. It feels unnecessary. And then some of the things that feel more necessary are not explored. Mm-hmm. Right? I think, you know, the relationship between the stepfather and the stepson. Uh, yeah. You know, the idea that the stepfather or the husband, Angie Dickinson's husband, is not only a... a a bad lover, but almost kind of borderline rapist. Yeah, that kind of, you know, mm. that, that scene at the beginning, yeah, that when she's, she's not, not enjoying, enjoying it, yeah. right? It's depicted as a, as a violation, as a rape that she's then kind of pretending to enjoy. Yeah, yeah I, I got that uh, sense So too. I think there were so many interesting avenues that the film could have gone into that it feels kind of undercooked. I mean, it mentions that stepfather more than a couple of times because the son is then explaining at least twice to people, he's not my dad, he's my stepdad, and he says at one point my dad was killed in Vietnam, and you're like, oh, so there's there's some character development 
com- coming here and, and it's never it brought happen. up again. Yeah. Why is it important that he's a stepdad and not his biological dad? Mm. I don't know. Yeah. Anyway, that was all very unsatisfactory, but, you know, seeing it again, it made me understand why it remained in my memory because I think it's absolutely great cinema. Yeah? Yeah, I do. You know, uh, so, you know, she's all in white, she goes to the museum, she's clearly looking for someone, it's like almost like silent cinema. Mm. She looks at her wedding ring or, you know, which, uh, or this, her diamond ring, I don't know if it's a wedding ring or an engagement ring or whatever it is. She's obviously there to meet someone, she doesn't know who it is. She, sees, she looks at people and they're all having sex and they're all, or, you know, they're all being <laughs> yeah. sexual, they're all being playful, right? It's kind of what, you know, she's there for. I mean, you know, the cutaways and, you know, the point of view on that. I mean, I think it's just magnificent cinema. You understand everything and, and you understand the complexity of it and the contradiction of it. She's afraid, she's excited, she's embarrassed, she's humiliated. Yeah. Right? All of those things kind of are happening in that sequence, really, you know, with that mobile camera kind of, you know, the paintings are saying something. I mean, I noticed a Lucian Freud, right? I mean, I, I don't recognize the main painting that kind of reflects back to her, that woman with the, you mm-hmm. know, with the ponytail. I'm sure it's significant in some way, right? But just kind of the movement through those through those spaces, I thought it was just absolutely glorious, really. Yeah. Um, I, I, I think I maybe slightly, slightly started to lose a bit of interest in that scene. I think it goes on a little too long. But I know exactly what you mean. It reminded me of that central scene in Mission Impossible, which mm. Palmer directed, where they're again super silent and they're doing the heist in mm. thing, and it's and it's all about every shot having information in it and how that information changes what you know or updates what you know and what the characters know or think they know and so on and so forth. It's kind of it is that pure filmmaking. It is, and the fact that it is wordless is is part of that. It's about it's about image. Mm. It's about what one image tells you and what the next image tells you and refers back to and so on and so forth. And yeah. you're absolutely right. The thing about how how her mood um mood or emotion changes, you know, between humiliation or excitement or fear or whatever. It's it's fluid and legible throughout the entire thing. Yes. It is brilliant. Yeah. Yeah. I mean that to me is like uh the highlight and I think Angie Dickinson is magnificent. Um I also, I always love uh, seeing Nancy Allen. I think she's one of the great presences of the cinema of this period. And I don't understand why she never became a bigger star or, you know, why she wasn't better used in a way, right? Um, But certainly in the three films that she did for De Palma, which were Carrie, Blowout, and this one, there Mm -hmm. might be others that I'm forgetting. But certainly in these three, she's just fantastic. You know, she's like kind of open-faced, you know, I love her way of speaking, I love the way that she looks, she's got kind of like this round, slightly, this face that still has puppy fat, you know, <laughs> but she's got this incredible body, right, you know, and she she's very sexual, but, you know, almost in an innocent way, right, like mm-hmm. it's just kind of what she does, I mean, I just think she is, she's superb, and I'm only sorry that kind of American directors were so unimaginative that they didn't find you know, other and more interesting and more ways to use her. What, than as a prostitute? No, just she didn't... She, she, oh, I, I don't remember her from any other role. Oh, I mean, so you mean, yeah. Uh, uh, let me look her up. Um, she was in Robocop, I guess, is the only other film. Mm. Um, well, I, my, my argument remains. She wasn't very well used, she wasn't very imaginative used, and she's someone who I think is absolutely great and a real original presence, yeah, that kind of 
people remember her and with great yeah. fondness on the basis of very few roles, mostly for the Palmer. Yeah, this film shows how, how, how empathetic and magnetic she can be. Yeah, she's a real warm presence. You know, you, uh, yeah, and you, know. you believe everything that she's doing, everything. And she's gorgeous as well. Mm. Um, so I mean, um, it's when when she when she's seducing Michael Caine, and she uh, re- takes her coat off and reveals her legs and that lingerie and the and the lightning. Poof, mm. Wow! I mean, that's a real wow moment. <laughs> was for me at least. Uh, now the thing is, Michael Caine. Yeah, that we haven't talked to, and as we said, you know, the the electric is running a season of Michael Caine films, even though we're not quite seeing them as Michael Caine. We're not exploring Michael Caine's career. We're exploring yeah, but he's the, the link between films. them. Yeah, yeah. Um, and to be honest, I this is the kind of Michael Caine that I that I remember, and why I'm not a particular fan. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because I can't fault him on anything. Yeah, he's I think he's very good, right? But you know the warmth and charm and magnetism that he shows in Get Carter, yeah, and uh, in the Italian Job. Are not quite present here. No, you know. So, so he's just like a good actor, but it could be like a good actor playing a secondary role, really. Mm. Yeah, I, I mean, there's no moment of his that I find really vivid and memorable, as I do with Nancy Allen or Angie Dickinson in this film. No, absolutely, he is missing that whatever spark and charisma that we've seen in the last couple of films. Um, I mean, I suppose it's appropriate that I was going to say there's something about him that I don't quite trust in this because obviously he does turn out to be a killer. <laughs> yes, that's probably um, deliberate. <laughs> um, but there is, I, I, it's partly in his in his voice because we're so used to, I don't know, I'm Michael Caine and he's kind of big and wide and cockney. Um, and here he's he hasn't changed his accent because he can't, but he's soft-spoken and kind of more refined. He's mm. a doctor. Mm. So it's still unmistakably him. Mm. But it's, it's kind of, it's not the him that I feel comfortable with mm. you know but that may be actually something deliberate about that because you end up you know he's not someone uh you eventually learn who you're supposed to be comfortable with he's the killer yeah um, though you know there is something about him playing english yeah um that is more alive and magnetic and you know because you know i also remember him from was the john houston film uh, based on the Rudyard Kipling, something about kings with Sean Connery. Oh, uh, the man who would be king. The man yeah, who would be yeah. king. You know, and he's so magnetic in that as well. You know, mm. and that's a kind of you know. So he's loud, he's boisterous, he's fun. He's got a twinkle in his eye. Yeah, there's a real you know, like like what we saw in the Italian Job. Yeah. Uh, obviously, a very different character, but you know, it's you know, he comes across as a real star and holds his arm with Sean Connery. You know who is one of the great stars, so you know. So there's just I just feel that you know there's a spark missing, and maybe it is just because he's playing a New York psychiatrist, you know. And, yeah. Um, but uh, uh, but I suppose there is something he, he his character is I suppose supposed to be withholding in some yes. way, and and that means that the the performance is not a giving one, you know. Whereas if you think about particularly the Italian job, but also get Carter. There's something generous about those performances. He's kind of giving to the audience. But, yes, but in Get Carter, he's also meant to be withholding. Yeah. Yeah, so... Um, yeah, but he's, he's not... I suppose what I mean is like he's not, he's not keeping secrets in Get Carter, whereas here... Well, I mean, actually, I, I suppose if you ever get to the bottom of 
what he knows about the secret that he's keeping. Well, the thing um, is, the thing is that you could explain that for the very first part of the film. Yeah. Right, but we know that he's Bobby very early on. Mm. Right. So you know, the reason for the withholding and yeah. you know would dissipate. Uh, anyway, like I said, I can't fault the performance, but it's not a star. No, no. Turn, you know. Um, he's not magnetic in the way that Nancy Allen is or that Andrew Dickinson is in the part. Uh, so, you know, just kind of mm. something worth commenting on. Um, I don't think it's one of De Palma's greatest, you know. I mean, I think he he claims that the elevator scene is the best murder he shot or whatever. I don't agree, you know. What do you uh, think his best murder is? Well, I think the 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 killing of Nancy Allen at the end of Blowout mm-hmm. is one of the great moments in film history. Really, this is nowhere near close. In other words, you're saying he he's a great filmmaker who's done greater filmmaking than in this film, with the exception of that scene you love early on. That's right. And actually, the opening shot as well. I mean, even though it is, I, 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 no, I'm going to say even though that opening shot early on is a glorious, seductive opening to the mm. film. The camera moving through the room and and the the steam in the shower and the beautiful it's woman, fantastic. you know. And um, even though you know, it, I, I suppose it's it's that it feels kind of um, substantially thin, right? It's all about effects. Well, except I think for you know the museum scene. Because that's not just about effects. No, no, well, I only meant that opening shot. Yeah. Yeah, that's... Um, uh, like, it, it opens with something that is spectacular and seductive and beautiful, but it but it immediately kind of feels thin to me. Do you see what I mean? Uh, yeah. I, well, I didn't think it felt thin because you don't know what's happening later. And, you know, that steaminess, that longing, that desire, mm. you know, the, the thing that she's pleasuring herself, you know. Um, I mean, kind of... Yeah. You wonder... I mean, the mood is conveyed in this extraordinary way. Now, you know, the significance of that mood depends on what happens after. Yeah, absolutely. Right. And actually, I think it works very well, you know, because to go from that and then like, you know, to what amounts to a rape is very yeah. powerful. You well, know? I was just thinking this, like, it feels like like a porn version of Psycho, which is being unfair to it. But I felt a bit unfair to it early on. Well, um, you know, it I took a while for it to maybe to get its hooks into me. Oh, well, um, not me. I mean... I mean, the film kind of basically lost me. I mean, I was with it all the way until Bobby gets shot. Yeah. And then from then on, it just it didn't it didn't just kind of slide away. It fell off a precipice. The film. Yeah. It's just yeah. like you know, you thought, what a stupid explanation. Why do we need all this narration? Why do we need all this explanation? You know, why is the film going on? Why is it? What is it going to show me now that it didn't show me earlier? And actually, the answer to all of that is pretty much kind of nothing, really. No, yeah. it just gives you one more uh, spectacular sequence that immediately falls to dust because it's just a dream, mm. and that's really not that impressive. I mean, and actually, and the thing about the explanation is, you know, you're expecting, I think, a bad explanation, especially with modern eyes. You know, forty mm. years later, of kind of having developed a better understanding of what being trans is, but especially because it's part of this long series of films that um, pathologise. Because it's not that... I mean, the film does explain it as as Michael Caine's character being trans, um, as opposed to, you know, 
split personality, but then it explains it in a way that says it's a split personality. It's kind of muddled and confused. And lazy. Um, yes. But then the thing that's ridiculous is having received that explanation, the Nancy Allen character then explains it to the Keith Gordon character. So you've got one person who doesn't understand something explaining it to someone else who doesn't understand it. Well, the woman behind, you know, that's all set up for the joke of the response of the woman behind. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Which is a good joke. Well, I I thought it was also lazy. (laughs) Uh, And really, I think having Phil Donahue in a talk show talking to a trans person as a way of justifying what the film does is super lazy. Yeah, you do get that. You uh, get that in Science of the Lambs as well, actually. You get this thing about um, uh, Clarice Starling saying, you know, no, no, trans people aren't vicious. They aren't violent. So it's the kind of film going, you know, we understand that trans people aren't a problem, but our trans person, it is a, as a way of kind of excusing what it mm, does with a mm, trans villain, yes. it's it's mucky. Yes. Um, so, so a mixed bag. Though actually, in terms of just my myself <laughs> uh, you know it made me understand why I remember that museum sequence so vividly yeah. whereas I didn't remember much of the rest of the film and that's because that scene is absolutely great so the greatness of the filmmaking is all stays with you ah. um, so what about the um, the chainsaw murder in uh, Scarface at the start as one of well that's different because I was an usher at Place de Canada when Scarface came out okay so I saw the that scene about 55 <laughs> times i mean you know and actually i made a point of going to see it like yeah you know, I, th- I thought it was like brilliant yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, there's still not a patch on the end of blowout the thing about the the end of blowout the thing about that chainsaw sequence mm-hmm. is that it's there for effect it shocks everybody yeah right it shocks everybody to the point of laughter because in those days it was just so over the top yeah. that people were shocked and horrified and laughing at the same time, mm. which is its own great effect. But the thing about the ending of Blowout is that it's imbued with feeling. Right. Right. You know, it's so sad. Mm. Right. And also it, it's imbued with different kinds of things. So you feel like this tragedy that, you know, John Travolta can't get there on time. You know, and it's all like so sad and hopeless and he's not a superhero and he loves her, you know, by that point. And also, you know, it's about America. The fireworks are going off. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's like, you know, so so it's a really complex kind of ending. Yeah. Right? You know, so it doesn't feel like like the chainsaw sequence is just a bit stunty. Yeah. Yeah. So, oh, yeah. For real. It yeah. is. Um I remember showing it to my mum when I was young, and she was covering her eyes. It's only a movie. It's only, a movie. and you don't see anything. I mean, you yeah. don't. You only see blood splattering back on the guy's face who's doing the murder. Mm. You don't see any contact or change on his skin, but you feel the. Con- mm. You know, it's one of those. Um, but speaking about graphic violence, do you think that this is over the top in its violence? Um, it is very graphic, I but it's also I, f- few and far between those scenes. I didn't, I didn't particularly think so. I mean. Uh, you know, the blood was so red, it's kind of like real movie blood, <laughs> right? Uh, I don't remember seeing the the knife go in, really. I mean, I didn't, I didn't find it... I, I, didn't, I mean, maybe if I were a woman, I would feel different, but I didn't find yeah. any of it shocking. Yeah, yeah. I, I think I agree with that. Um, and, and I think also the film kind of... It, it has a good sense of humour in between those scenes. Yes. Not in those scenes, Jesus. But like it kind of it leavens itself. And I think it has, it has quite a good control of tone. It's funny. It's, it's got a fantastic control of tone. The camera work is amazing. But actually, there are things that... You know, what I did find truly shocking, as I said earlier, was 
that scene in the subway with the four black men, yeah. I mean, that is shocking, right? Yeah. And actually, shocking to myself as well, because I don't remember registering it <laughs> as a problem when I first saw it. I'd completely forgotten about that sequence, yeah. right? Mm. Which now seems so horribly racist. Yeah. It really is. I mean, I didn't know how that scene went. Um, and, you know, when she bumps into the two uh, black guys at the start, and you think, oh, is she looking for refuge from them or something? Um, you know, I guess the scene can go in any number of ways, but that they turn on her immediately and become these kind of quote-unquote jive gangsters, mm. start chasing her through the subway. I thought, this is just, this is ridiculous, and this is offensive. Mm. And, and even at the time, I mean, it has to have been offensive at the time. If people were taking offence to the depiction of women and trans people and the violence, well, they, they must have been able to take offence to the Well, racism. maybe you underestimate, you know, the racism of the audience, and, you know, maybe and I... I I put myself as an example because I just had completely forgotten about that scene and I don't remember being offended by it. Yeah. You know, in a way that seems so blatant to me now. Yeah. So. yeah. Well, you've or, grown as a person and that's lovely. I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'd say, kind of, despite the fact that it is, in several ways, really problematic and, and very obviously so, I was really absorbed and I think it's a film I can really recommend. Yes, I, I do. It's like well. watch with caution, right? Watch with kind of one eye on the issues. Mm. But also the filmmaking is incredible. Yeah, the filmmaking is incredible. Um, but then, you know, it can be divorced from, you know, all the other things. So no. I think it's a really problematic film with moments of absolutely superb cinema. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you very much for listening. We're eavesdropping at the movies and we are on. Apple Podcasts, Audible, Google Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, and YouTube. On social media, we're on Facebook and Twitter, at Eavesdrop Movies. And the website is eavesdroppingatthemovies.com. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.